Well, good evening, guys. Thanks for good evening. Thanks for coming out, and I, I want to thank you guys for the affirmation of uh, that I'm doing okay up here a while ago. That you know, it goes a long way for a speaker. You know, anybody that speaks to anyone, we we want to do a good job, and uh, I want to do a good good job here um, for you guys, for Israel, for God's glory. Certainly not mine. I don't need any more. <laughs> Had plenty of glory. But thank you, seriously, it means a lot. And um, so, we'll jump into it. What we're going to do tonight is, um, I'm going to speak a few minutes, and then I've, I've chosen to take about a 10-minute video to watch about the land of Israel. Um, I'm trying to build a really strong foundation with you guys. Um, maybe <laughs> more detail than some people would like, but I'm really wanting to get this foundation for Israel, its people, what it means, what it means to God, what it should mean to us. And the reason for that is when these talks are over and gone, things are going to be happening. A lot of things are going to be happening. Uh, what pace, I don't know. But if you have this foundation, I think you'll be better able on your own to assimilate these things and better understand what's, go what's going on in the world because the world is moving, and it's moving really quickly. So if, if, um, if I'm getting too detailed, bear with me, and then um, we'll trust it'll get better soon. Um, some people like details, some don't. So we're still talking about the birth of Israel. So Isaiah 66, 8 through 10. Uh, he wrote this uh, around 580 years before Jesus was even born. And he's speaking of, of Israel, not Jesus here, but Israel. Who has ever heard of such things? Which means this will never happen. Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? This was written a long time before Israel was put in dispersion around the world and then obviously came back to what we're talking about tonight. So, um, there, and there are many, many scriptures up there. Uh, obviously, we can't go through them all. Don't need to go through them all. Uh, but that's one that speaks about that moment that out of the blue, after 2,000 years, you've heard that phrase a lot, suddenly Israel became a nation. Now, last week we kind of ended with the ugly-looking pictures of desolation and desert, and that's what Mark Twain saw when he toured in the 1800s and what happened, you know, to Israel. Uh, now, what we're going to do about is we're going to... I want to read this scripture, two scriptures actually, and I'll go ahead and read them. And what they're doing is they're prophesying about the blooming of the desert and the trees and the fruit and all that. But um, Isaiah 35.1 says, Even the wilderness and desert will rejoice in those days. The desert will blossom with flowers. Y'all are going to see that in a minute. Uh, see, this is Ezekiel 34.27. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. I like that one when it says Israel will f 
fill the face of the world with fruit. Today, Israel is one of the largest exporters of fruit in the world, to the, especially to the European areas. So we see prophecy coming true, you know, in the news, and the headlines. So that's why I think if we can learn this basis for Scripture and prophecy, we can better pick up and understand on these things that are going to happen. Um, got that video ready? It's about 10 minutes. Now, this is a little bit of a dispersion from what I've been talking about, you know, Bible prophecy, the birth of Israel. I did want to throw in some pictures of Israel, some more, because we are here to learn about the land, not just past, but present. And um, I thought this was interesting, especially uh, if you like farming and things like that. So go ahead, Hunter. In 1867, Mark Twain toured the land of Israel, known back then as Palestine. Here's how he described it. A desolate country whose soil is rich enough, but is given over wholly to weeds. A silent, mournful expanse. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes, desolate and unlovely. Today, Mark Twain wouldn't even recognize this land. Out of rocky soil, out of swamps, and even out of deserts, Israelis have created gardens, vineyards, and farms with some of the most innovative techniques in the world. It was just this country with incredible dynamism and energy and excitement and food and people and a sense of family and ultimately a sense of belonging. It's been said that the modern state of Israel was born on the kibbutz. So it's only natural that much of Israel's innovation was born there as well. The kibbutz is the cornerstone in a lot of ways of a lot of things in Israeli society. People came back wanting to create a collective and an equal society. And these kibbutzim became a very, very effective way to defend the land, to start getting young people engaged in agriculture. Remember, Jews were forbidden in most countries of the world to actually own land or to work the land. Jews couldn't be farmers. To all of a sudden see a generation of Jews farming the land in a collective environment, it was, it was incredible. Before Israel even became a state, Jews by the thousands came to live there on communal farms. But when they arrived in the Promised Land, it wasn't exactly flowing with milk and honey. The coastal plains were swampy, the Galilee and the Judean hills were rocky, and the southern half of the country was mostly desert. Since the people of Israel left our homeland 2,000 years ago, the area was mismanaged. So we want to preserve and rehabilitate this holy land. The early Jewish settlers faced a number of obstacles, from bad soil to Bedouin raiders. But they faced an even bigger enemy that threatened to destroy the Jewish state before it began. In the early decades of the 20th century, Israel was a breeding ground for mosquitoes carrying malaria. They overtook the coastal plains and the Jordan Valley, the only land available for Jews to buy since the local Arabs had decided it was uninhabitable. In 1920, more than a third of all Jewish residents of Palestine had malaria. So with no other choice, they went to work they drained the swamps and sprayed the land and changed the flow of water in irrigation canals to interrupt the mosquitoes' breeding. 
They were so successful that a commission from the League of Nations visited Palestine to learn what they did. Less than 20 years after Israel's statehood, the country was officially malaria-free. Once the threat of malaria was gone, Jewish settlers were free to focus on making the desert bloom. In the coastal plains, citrus groves replaced the swamps. In the Jordan Valley, once the center of the malaria epidemic, now became the country's breadbasket. The Negev Desert blossomed with newly planted forests and vineyards. And the Arava, once the most arid part of Israel, became the site of a flourishing vegetable industry. All of this was accomplished in the first 20 years of Israel's statehood. In that time, they more than doubled their standard of living. And now they're using their experience to help other countries. In the 1970s, they created a new breed of cherry tomato that's disease resistant and has a longer shelf life. They also bred a new kind of potato that can be grown in hot, dry climates and irrigated by salt water. These vegetables are now being grown in dry countries like Jordan, Egypt, and Morocco. Israeli scientists not only found ways to grow more crops, they also found new ways to preserve them. Grain Pro cocoons provide an inexpensive way for farmers to keep their grain market fresh by keeping out water, air, and insects. The Israeli cocoons are being used in Africa, the Far East, and even Pakistan, a nation with no diplomatic ties to Israel. The kibbutz over time began to change. Israeli society began to change, became more capitalistic, became more focused on free enterprise and entrepreneurship and then the individual taking responsibility for himself and therefore benefiting the overall society. There have been many very exciting companies that have been built in kibbutzim. One of those companies is now doing business around the world. He went to the average Israeli 10, 12 years ago and said to them, organic, they wouldn't have a clue what you were talking about. Here we've been doing organic farming for over 40 years. Kibbutz Stay Eliyahu was founded by German refugees in 1934, and many of their early members were survivors of the Holocaust. The biggest problem that we had when we started the organic was, what do you do if you're not using chemicals? How do you get rid of the pests? Their answer was to fight bugs with more bugs. Every single thing in nature has a natural enemy. What eats or what attacks these pests that are attacking our crops? They started breeding different insects in the bomb shelter of the kibbutz. The idea was to breed predators to destroy the pests that ate their crops. The result was a new company called BioBee. We went to the Israeli farmers, we said, you want to buy some bugs? They said, what are you, crazy? <laughs> we don't have enough bugs in the field, you want us to buy bugs? Eventually, they won over farmers in Israel and in 32 other countries as well. In California, 60% of the strawberry fields are treated with products from BioBee. The company also found a way to deal with one of the region's most devastating insects, the Mediterranean fruit fly. We take the males of the species and we sterilize them. And then we release the sterile males into the environment. There's no future generation. And slowly, slowly, we lower the population without using harmful chemicals. 
They also solved another agricultural problem, how to pollinate greenhouse plants. The classic example we like to give is, is tomato plants. Tomato plants in, the, in nature, in the fields, are pollinated by the wind. In Israel, the majority of our tomatoes are not grown in the fields, they're grown in greenhouses. And in greenhouse, in a climate-controlled environment, you don't have that wind, you don't have the natural pollination. We had to find other methods of pollination. Their solution was to breed bumblebees. They collect pollen for food. They have to go and work even in cold weather conditions. They don't have stores of honey in the hive. They have to go and work. We're saving the farmer money because instead of paying people, the bees are doing the work. And the bees, unlike people, they don't miss a single flower. So once the farmers started using the bees for pollination, the yield of the tomato crops increased by 25%. In Hebrew, we say, Marabuma Sechelokim, you know, how great and wonderful are your creations, uh, God. And this really shows that every single thing has a reason. There's a purpose for everything, these tiny little things. And look how much good they do for us, for the world, for the farmers, for the environment. It's really, really amazing. Farmers at Stay Eliyahu not only targeted insects, they also found a creative way to get rid of rodents as well. What we used to do is basically used to take um, poison in a bottle, in a teaspoon. And somebody's job was to walk up and down the rows, and every time they saw a mouse hole, to take a teaspoon of poison and throw it down the hole. Now, obviously, that's not ecologically friendly. On top of that, if it rains or if we irrigate our fields, all that poison is going in the ground. So we said, what is a natural solution to rodents? And the natural solution that we found is the barn owl. The barn owl is an amazing raptor. Two owls can capture an average of two to 5,000 mice a year. Okay, that's a lot of rodents. There was just one problem with the owls. They fly away. And one of the places they would fly to is Jordan, which is very close by. In Jordan, they were shooting them. In Arab folklore, the barn owl is a harbinger of death. And they're very superstitious about barn owls. So they see in a barn owl, they shoot it. So very simply, we went to Jordan and we invited the Jordanian farmers to come to Staliao to see what we were doing here. This was over 20 years ago, and today we have over 2,600 nesting boxes across the country. Numbers keep growing, but also it's become a wonderful program of regional cooperation, also with Jordan, also with the Palestinian Authority. This has been amazing, amazing uh, success story. We tell the people it's not the dove bringing peace anymore to the Middle East, it's the barn owl. We're a light unto the nations, we're supposed to be anyways. If we want to really save the environment, if we really want to help the world, then we can't keep these things to ourselves. We have to share these things, we have to share this knowledge. And I think by helping others, we're helping ourselves as well. Well, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, yeah a little bit off subject, but not really. We're looking at Bible prophecy with almost everything we saw. We're like God's creative ability, at the very least. All right, now we're going to talk about Israel, newborn baby. Newborns have to be supported. We all know that. Israel was born in a day, May 14th, Israel time, and the Arab nations had already planned and gotten ready to invade Israel the moment it was born, the moment it was declared as a state. Um, Israel was getting ready for it too. The Jews were smuggling arms in uh, all they could, although 
there was an issue with the British. The British controlled Palestine, as it was known back then, and they were responsible for keeping the Jews and Arabs from fighting with, with each other, but that was impossible. And violence progressively increased through the years between the Jews and the Arabs. Of course, it goes on to this day. But Britain really kind of favored the Arabs more than the Jews because of the Arabs had oil. And um, until recently, uh, Israel didn't. It used to be kind of a joke going around that, you know, Moses took the Hebrews and wandered around all those countries in the Middle East for 40 years and settled in the only country that did not have any oil, which <laughs> was Israel. Uh, that's not true any longer. Uh, Israel is, has found tremendous stores of, of gas and oil, and uh, they're building a pipeline that's going to go to Europe, and we're going to talk about that next week when we get into some pretty serious uh, hardcore Bible prophecy regarding Russia, Ukraine to some degree, um, how possibly Ukraine is going to set the sights on, or not set the sights, but give Russia the idea, as Ezekiel 38 and 39 speaks, to invade Israel in the latter days. And I guess we all know we're in those days. But back to what happened. Um, the violence grew worse between the Arabs and the Jews. Um, and they bombed hotels. I mean, it, it got really, really bad. So do you have that map of the old city? Or did we get that? Didn't make it? Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> there it is. I'm, I'm, I'm already, uh, Marty, I'm already uh, kind of spoiled at that monitor. Yeah, okay, <laughs> great. Okay, look at the one on the right first. Um, what that shows, it's a lot of blobs, I know, but that shows the partition line uh, at the end of the War of Independence, which we haven't gotten to yet, but there's almost a vertical line that comes down and kind of curves, and then right in the middle right, you see this rectangle. That's the old city of Jerusalem sitting within the entire city of Jerusalem. So when, when you all see pictures of Israel, this is the walls, those pictures are from the walls of the old city. But what's important on this one on the right is the, the light color, the gray to your right, is land that the Arabs controlled at the end of uh, the War of 48. And then to the left, the darker, is what the Jews held. In other words, the Jews did not control Jerusalem, the old city at all. It was completely in the, land, in the hands of the Arabs until another war in 1967. So um, if you look at the one on the left, then that breaks down the old city. It's not that big in the big scheme of things. The most impressive thing is the Temple Mount bottom right, that rectangle, and that's where the Dome of the Rock sits today. Uh, it's the most prominent thing you might see. But within the old city, there are many, many winding roads, more than this shows, of different quarters. There's the Jewish quarter, the Armenian quarter, the Christian quarter. Uh, it seems like it goes on and on. But these are narrow alleys. Sometimes you can barely get a cart down them, and they're just filled with interesting people of all kinds. Um, 
but the bazaars are really fun to go to with the fruits and the gadgets and all that stuff. So we always do that when we're there. So that's the old city within all of Jerusalem that you're kind of looking at there. Um, the United Nations, remember the May of 48 when, when statehood was declared. The hostilities were so bad, the United Nations stepped in. And on November 29th, 1947, which was six months before the statehood, they came in and they partitioned um, Palestine. And they divided it. They said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to give this much land to the Jews for a state and this much land to the Arabs. And it was really like a jigsaw puzzle. It, was, it wasn't very pretty. There were areas of land that were not continuous with other areas of land. But the Jews wanted a homeland so desperately, they said, we'll take it. It's not really what we want, but we'll take it. We'll take it, no problem. And the Arabs didn't. They immediately said, nope, we want all of it or none of it. And so that's when war was obviously on the horizon. So the statehood was declared, as we read on the scripture at the very beginning, on Isaiah 66, 8, about uh, the state being born in a day. The Israelis knew they were going to have to fight for their newborn country. Um, the, the Arab nations, if you look at a map of the Middle East, uh, y'all already know how small Israel is. It's very, very tiny. I mean, if this table were the immediate surrounding Arab lands, or let's say this piece of paper were, and that's all this immediate surrounding Arab lands, I mean, Israel would maybe be the size of that red arrow there. So they're hugely outnumbered in man, material, and particularly, you know, war machines. So, um, one minute after midnight, the day after Israel declared statehood, Israel was invaded by five Arab armies simultaneously. Lebanon from the north, Syria from the northeast, uh, Iraq came all the way over, invaded, Jordan to the immediate east, started invading, and then Egypt came up from the south. So that picture there shows you what the baby state was facing. One minute after midnight, the day after they declared, and they didn't declare statehood until around 6 p.m., so this is like seven hours later. Um, you can get an idea of what they were facing. And the thing is also, it's not just the quantity of land and, and people, it's what they had to fight with. Jordan had a very advanced army. I mean, they were well-trained. They had mechanized divisions. They had tanks. They had armored personnel carriers. They, they were an excellent army. Egypt also is well-known for a pretty well-trained army. Uh, Iraq, these are all familiar names still today. Uh, Syria and so on. Now, the pro and that's just an example, for instance, of some of the Arabs that uh, were coming. <laughs> that picture there is very intense. It reminds me of what we saw in Israel a number of months ago when the Gaza conflict was going on with the Iron Domes firing off. But that's the old city bombardment by the Arabs 
during the uh, war that started. I mean, and the, the Jews within the old city were totally cut off from all of the Jews around the rest of the country. And they depended on convoys going from the coast, bringing food with lines of trucks like that, food, water, medicine, ammunition, everything. And these convoys had to snake through these mountains going from the plains up to Jerusalem. And the valleys are just set up for ambushes and terrible loss of lives. So the Arabs would come over the crest, fire down on these guys, and uh, they just kept pressing through because otherwise all the inhabitants of Jerusalem would have been lost, possibly. They, <laughs> they didn't have any real mechanized uh, machines, so they'd, they'd get plate sheet metal and put it on the sides and do the best they could. That's uh, some of the results. Even today, to this day, the Israeli government has chosen to leave the rusted remains of a lot of those trucks and equipment down in the ravines because the new road pretty much parallels the old one. Um, and just as a reminder to people uh, regarding what it took to gain statehood. The Jews began pouring into Israel with armaments and grew um, after the war lasted nine months, by the way. There were a couple of truces where they were supposed to, you know, not rearm, but both sides did <laughs> tremendously. But more and more Jews started coming into Palestine to fight for their nation. You have to understand, too, these five invading armies, if they didn't do well or lost, they could go back home. The Jews had nowhere to go. Their homeland had been destroyed in Europe. Europe was in ruins from World War II. Um, they had made immigration, meaning once they come, they're not going back. And the only thing behind them was the Mediterranean Sea. It was fight or die all the way for them. The kibbutz, um, that's a bit more modern picture there. It's, it's uh, later on. But I put that one in there just to show the women. The kibbutz that were scattered around Israel were told by Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion was the mastermind, really, that helped lead the nation to statehood. Each kibbutz, no matter what, they were told to hold on, don't give up, don't surrender, fight to the last man or woman, no matter what it took. And that helped slow down the onslaught of these Arabs. So the Israelis were using Molotov cocktails, like you've seen some of the Ukrainians a few weeks ago using on the news, to try to stop these tanks. And you know they did. Um, the Arabs finally kind of wore down, and the war eventually came to an end about six months, about nine months later. So at that point is when where this division I showed you on the map a while ago occurred. So it was left with, yeah, the old city still in Arab land, hands, part of the city in Jewish hands. And you've got to remember, these people hate each other. So that didn't go over very well at all. And uh, it's part of the basis of why you see the ongoing fighting that's been going on ever since. And we'll continue. Um, 
It was not uh, Israel's last war. Um, I'm not going to go into wars in detail because uh, I want to skip over those. We can always come back if you like. But Israel was home. 23,000 Jews a month started pouring in to Palestine. 23,000 a month. So the new state, I mean, they had to have a government, they had to have schools, they had to have infrastructure, they had to have food. And that's one reason you saw these people out there with pry bars moving boulders to try to get the land where they could farm it and produce food. They actually started some uh, basement industries. Uh, they had one kibbutz was producing uh, a million rounds of ammunition a month or some unbelievable <laughs> down in the basement. So any of you all that did re do reloading, you know what that would take. But they survived, and it was about survival. Again, they had no other place to go. This was their only time in history to have a place they could call their own. In the pictures on the video, you know, you saw some of the industrial, not industrial, but the modernization of Israel. It's a very modern country now. Uh, skyscrapers, a few of them. Tel Aviv, very modern. So they have come a long way. The John Deere... Are they over there? Oh, yeah, yeah John Deere. The um, war in 67, I'm just going to mention it, uh, in 1967, and the years leading up to that, the, see, the Arabs never got over the, the loss of, of Palestine in 1948. They immediately started this vitriolic hatred. It was everywhere. It was on, you know, the news. It was just everywhere. They're going to exterminate the Jews. They're going to take over the land. This was their God-given right, they thought. Um, so things got worse uh, in 67. It got so worse, the Israelis had by then a, a modern air force, a modern army, and they saw that the Egyptians were building up strength on their southern flank, and in the north, the Syrians were building up their influence. We're talking about 5,000 tanks getting ready to come into Israel. Um, around six or 700 airplanes opposing Israel's. So they uh, hit first, Israel hit first. It was an incredible plan. Uh, it's, it's well documented in, in books and video. Uh, if anything that y'all want to know about uh, on Israel in the past, Certainly, YouTube is wonderful. You can find anything there. But uh, they're great documentaries about everything I've talked about. So, amazingly, they took out almost the entire Egyptian Air Force on the ground. They had learned with intelligence uh, that the uh, Egyptian pilots and their training, every morning they'd take off at the same time. <laughs> they'd land about 7.30 or 8 to have breakfast and park all their airplanes real nicely in a row while they went and had breakfast. So Israel flew at heights like 30 feet above the Mediterranean, launched every single airplane they had. They did not leave any in reserve whatsoever. It was do or die. And they took out almost the whole Egyptian uh, Air Force. Then they turned towards Syria, which was the next main enemy that was going to happen. That was a six-day war. 
yeah, it was a real blitzkrieg war. Uh, they gained an incredible amount of new territory. They gained the whole Negro Desert. Uh, they gained uh, part of Egypt. Um, they went within uh, literally 10 miles of Damascus, Syria. So, I mean, they gained that land. So the Arabs said, well, we're done. <laughs> Let's stop and called a truce. And um, they backed off. The beautiful thing about that war is they did make it into the old city of Jerusalem. And most uh, vividly, uh, in, in many pictures, they made it to one of the most revered spots, and that's the Western Wall, formerly called the, the Wailing Wall. This uh, great picture there on the, the left, um, you see the, the original picture. Yeah. Original picture of paratroopers, Israeli paratroopers that first entered the old city, and that's the Western Wall you see behind them. And then on the right, a few years later, the same three guys in the same pose, kind of thinking about the time that for the you know, first time in a long time, Jews were able to kneel or stand, and really just stand and lean on that incredible wall. Um, we'll show pictures of all of it next time probably. Um, the um, problem with the Six-Day War, if you want to call it a problem of the war, Israel had such a decisive victory. They gained so much territory. Uh, they, they actually captured 100,000 Egyptians. I mean, to give you an idea of the speed with which they did all this stuff. They got kind of complacent in the years to follow. Um, that was 67. 1973 was the Yom Kippur War, which caught Israel totally off guard. They did not see it coming. And that sounds unusual because we know Israel is like, you know, they've got the Mossad. They know everything about everybody. How did they get caught off guard? They got complacent, cocky, and thought, man, look what we did. We're great. Um, same armies, mainly Egypt and Syria and Iraq, suddenly on Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the Jewish year. Uh, one day a year, Yom Kippur, which means a day of atonement. They fast all day and go to services, and that is the day that God will forgive all of their sins for the past year, and they'll be okay. But uh, the, the, everything closes down. I mean, everything. Nothing on the highway. It absolutely shuts down. So early that morning, uh, the Arabs struck in all directions, uh, like I said, thousands of tanks rolling across the north, thousands coming up from the south. Israel didn't know they were coming, and it was almost a massacre. Um, <clears throat> quite a story about that war, many stories about it. Uh, one is that in the north, there were finally, I mean, the, the Israelis took tremendous losses. They lost a lot of men and women. but. After a few days in the northern part, there were three Israeli tanks remaining, and more Syrian tanks were coming at them, and they stopped coming suddenly. I mean, these guys were ready to be annihilated. Interestingly, in the Sinai in the south, the same thing happened. Same picture. Egyptian tanks coming, and they stopped. 
that gave them time to bring up their reservists, bring up their reserve armor, corps, and eventually, again, <laughs> expand beyond their original borders. Every time Israel goes to war, it comes out with more land than when it went in. And uh, so, um, again, miracle. There are other stories of miracles that uh, people saw and did. Nobody seems to know why those tanks suddenly stopped, and it gave the Israelis time. So what we're going to do next week, I, I wanted you guys to have this much basis about Israel because we're going to see... Um, Next week, I'm going to speak about more. We've talked about past things. We're going to talk about future things next week. And we're going to start with something that's, you know, it's on the news today, which is Russia. Russia. Um, and Gog and Magog. And I don't know if you, all of you have heard those words or not. But Ezekiel 38 and 39 speaks of this upcoming tremendous battle where Russia, by name, will make a confederacy with several other nations, by name, that was predicted by Ezekiel way, way, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. And um, we live in an exciting generation right now because we're alive at a time where we can start making sense of what's going on on the world stage. You know, we've got television, we've got internet, we can see what's going on. And um, one of my goals in, in doing this is so when you guys start seeing some of these things happen on down the road, if we're all still here, like Marty always says, if we're still here, we haven't been raptured, um, you'll, you'll go, hey, I'm, I've got an idea of what might be happening right here. And that's happened to me numerous times in the last few decades. Um, basically because of the Bible. The Bible is, has never been wrong. Everything we've talked about in the last now three weeks has been prophesied. It's happened. You've seen proof of it. Everything that will happen in the future, God has made clear to those who are watching and waiting. We're commanded to watch very closely to be vigilant. We're commanded to love Israel. Back to that. Uh, from day one, I asked you guys to consider falling in love with Israel or at least have an open heart to knowing what has had to happen in history for things to come together as they are now. Uh, God has moved tremendously because he chose them. They are his chosen people. So we're seeing more and more of that as we come. Um, there's a verse... I wrote it down, didn't put it on the screen, but it's in, in Zechariah 12.1. And God says, and we, again, we see this happening. Look, I'm making Jerusalem an unstable cup toward all of its surrounding armies when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. It will come about at that time that I will make Jerusalem a heavy weight. So, it's an understatement. So everyone who burns themselves with it will be crushed. So you just think again about the news. You know, uh, Trump moving our um, embassy. Thank you. Got a mental block there. Embassy. Jerusalem. That's huge. You know, we're, we all say we're not political, but 
you know, we are. Thank God for Donald Trump. <laughs> he got a lot done. And he, um, the Golan Heights uh, up in the north, we talked about talking to ago, it truly is the heights that overlook the Galilee. He also um, signed a declaration declaring that, yes, the Golan Heights do belong to Israel because that's been contested, you know, between Israel and Syria for some time. So, you know, Trump did a lot. We'll see what the future brings, but, um, you know, when we receive the Lord, it's in Romans and Galatians, we inherit the Jewish legacy. So, as part Jews, I guess, it's very incumbent on us to, to do these things. And um, we're forever linked, you know, with the spiritual promises of God. So I thank you all for your uh, attention. I'm going to start next week on more timely things perhaps. But I hope this has given you a foundation to help you better understand those things we've talked about and will happen. Any questions? Oh, yep. Flew to Israel except one time. The very first time we went, uh, El Al Airlines was on strike and we had to fly into Jordan. Talk about culture shock. Uh, Jordan, Amman, Jordan. We landed, and Shred is in the nursery. There was the two of us, and we landed, and, you know, we just took off from John F. Kennedy, was, you know, great airport. Amman, Jordan. I kid you not. We landed. And as we descended the plane on stairs, <laughs> there were Arabs with fires, you know, here and there roasting goats over the pits with machine guns slung over their backs that we had. <laughs> so <laughs> it was a culture shock. All the other times flew straight into Israel. Uh-huh. Incredible. Yeah, I've never seen so many uh, rows of concrete blocks with rebar sticking out of them as I did in Jordan. I mean, it's just everywhere and a wasteland, truly. God bless the Jews. I mean, and they're. Amazing country. Um, Arvel, did you have a question? Uh, the, uh, war, how long that? Uh, it, <laughs> in 73. Not very long. Uh, a week, 10 days, maybe. Not, not too terribly long. And, they, and, the, and again, it was stopped because Israel, the verge of defeat, I mean, hanging on by their fingernails. Whipped up on them bad. And um, 
Israel, God said, once he returned the Jews to their land, they would never depart from it again. So they're not going anywhere. And uh, we're going to be talking about Iran and nuclear weapons and the existential threat that those have to Israel. Uh, Iran, uh, a couple of days ago, there, you know, the people that know are saying Iran could have a bomb in a couple of weeks. Uh, so in the natural, you know, leaving God out of it, I'd be scared to death for Israel. But I'm not. It's going to be interesting to see where that goes, too. Because Israel's not going to let them get the bomb. Marty? 